great day, a great opportunity to worship you, opportunity to just really focus on you. I guess it, it, I know for me it's so easy to focus on everything else but you. So I pray, God, that this time your spirit would lead us as we look into your word, teach us and guide us, transform us by your living and active word. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. All right, if you really think about it, you know, I was thinking about this week as I was looking at the topic I wanted to talk about. It really is getting a lot harder to discern between what is true and what is false. I mean, although it's a modern phenomenon, deliberate misinformation or what we have all come to fondly know of as false news is especially in the arena of politics is prevalent. It's something we're dealing with all the time. It's rampant. We're hearing about it. We don't know what's true, what's not a lot of the times. Um, another area, just stroll through social media, which I know many of you spend a lot of time doing, um, or some of you just spend a little time. It's a, no judgment, okay? No judgment here. Um, but you just look through social media, and I do the same thing when I'm looking through Facebook and things like that. Everyone's life, does everyone's life look so interesting, doesn't it? Their life looks so interesting. It looks so fulfilling with selfies of uh, fun and interesting places, with fun and interesting people doing fun and interesting things. You're like, okay, I'm seeing this side, but I know there's more. There's more to it out there. We put our best, people put their best side uh, forward. Um, and we also, we live in an age of relativism, don't we? Where standards of right and wrong are really subjective. It's how people feel. It's how you think. Whatever I feel about it, you know, and it, things are, the, what's right and what's wrong, it's always changing. And really, it's what's determined as right and wrong so often is derived by what society says is right and wrong. At that time, <laughs> whatever's going on now, that's what's good, that's what's right, that's what's wrong. So this is the time, we, this is what we live with right now. This is, this is how we live. Now, the dangerous thing about this, the thing that's the most serious problem is with all of this, it's easy for that mindset to make its way into our spiritual lives. And I think we, don't, we miss this. We don't realize how easily it happens. Because you see, we have an enemy who wants nothing more than to keep us from living a life that he wants us to live, that he desires us to live, a life full of joy, a life full of contentment that comes from knowing that without a doubt, no doubt whatsoever, I know that God cares for me. I know that God loves me. The creator of the universe is on my side. What happens is this mindset can really warp that a lot. And it's one of the main tactics that the enemy uses from keeping us from living a life and doing everything possible. He'll do anything possible to keep us from that mindset. Because if he can, if he can do that, if he can get us to be confused about really what is right and wrong spiritually and where we really stand and how far we're willing to go with certain things, it'll keep us from having the proper perspective of God and of ourselves. Which what's going to happen is in turn that's going to cause us to ex not to be able to experience this true joy and this contentment even when life goes sideways, even when things are really difficult. Especially then he wants to take that misinformation we have or that thought or that belief we have about who he is and turn that and use our circumstances to just elevate that difficult situation even more. So as we continue on our study in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, what we're going to be looking at at, this, at our passage this morning is where Jesus shows us how to discern spiritual truth from lies. Now, I know that 
When we say things like that from the pulpit, especially from up front, we say, it's easy to think, well, you know what, I've been a Christian a long time, or I've been a follower of Jesus for so long. I'm pretty good at discerning what are lies and what aren't. I think we've got to be careful when we say that. I think you've got to be really careful, because the enemy knows that we feel that way. Oh, you've been in church for a long time. Just sit back, don't realize. You, you, know, what, you know what you know. You know what you need to know. That's exactly where he wants us to get. He wants us to get comfortable. So then what happens is we don't realize when our beliefs and what we believe about God and ourselves are starting to wane and move in a dangerous direction. So that's where we're going to go this week. Now, last week, after feeding 4,000 Gentiles, remember he fed 4,000 Gentiles or non-Jews, Jesus, along with his disciples, they sailed to this region. Remember, it's called the region of Magadan, which now what it's doing, it's taking them from Gentile territory back into Jewish territory. And right away, what seems to happen a lot of times with Jesus, he's confronted by some religious leaders. So let's look at Matthew chapter 16. Verse 1, he says this, And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them, show him, them a sign from heaven. Now, first of all, you got to understand, this was very unusual. It's very unusual that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two sets of religious leaders, are acting together here, because these guys did not get along. Okay, their beliefs were very, very different. Their belief systems actually clashed with one another. For example, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection and an afterlife. The Sadducees didn't. This was it. This was, this was all there is. Um, put it this way. I, this is the, probably the best way to say it without getting into all the technical stuff. The Pharisees really were the ultimate religious conservative legalists. Okay, that's who they were. And the Sadducees were the ultimate religious permissive liberals, okay? That's who they are. Now, get political people out of your head, political parties, but I thought, where we're going today, okay? We're not, okay? Really, the only reason that these two almost polar opposite religious groups got together and worked together because they were both threatened by Jesus. They were threatened by his ministry. They were threatened by his teaching and all that he was doing, you know, one friend of mine described it this way, what was really going on to really get in our heads, what was going on here is to see the Pharisees as San Francisco Giants fans, okay? And the Sadducees as L.A. Dodger fans. Oh, hey, I'm going to pull out my L.A. hat if you don't keep doing that anymore. Okay, this shows those fans are getting together and they're coming together to cheer against their common enemy, the New York Yankees. Okay, so that kind of gives you a picture for those sports people of kind of what this feel is like here. We see that these religious leaders, they came, and they didn't come to learn. They didn't come to say, oh, we've heard and seen amazing things and heard amazing things. So we really want to learn from you. We want to learn more about them. Remember, this whole thing is about, remember what's the, the title of this entire series is the Upside Down Kingdom. They weren't saying, oh, wow, seems different what you've been talking about. Tell us more about this kingdom. That's not at all why they came. They came because they were threatened by Jesus. They came to test him by asking him to show them a sign. Give us a sign from heaven. Now, you would think after all that we've been talking about for the last 15 chapters in this, all the things that they've heard, 
uh, you know, that great killer sermon on the mount, all the people that he's healed. He raised a girl from the dead. Remember that? All these amazing things that he has done. He's fed thousands and thousands of people with just a, a scant little amount of food. You would think that that would be enough to convince these guys that, okay, maybe Jesus is who he claims to be, but no way. There was no way this was going to convince him, you know, because they were looking for, they were looking from this sign from heaven. They weren't looking to be convinced. They want this sign from heaven. What this means is they wanted him to do something big. They wanted him to do something really supernatural, like what he hadn't been doing wasn't enough. We want to see something big here, something that would, without a doubt, cause us to go, oh, yes, you, you are. You must be the Messiah. The truth is, he could have, the reality is, Jesus could have said, oh, let me take you over. Remember that parting of the Red Sea you know about? I'm going to do that for you right now. I'll do it again. And he could have done that. I mean, he could have, like with Joshua, remember Joshua prayed that the sun and the moon would not move so the battle could go more. He could, he could have done that and said, watch, nothing's going to happen for the next six hours. The sun's not moving. He could have done anything of anything like that. He could have brought down like, you know, fire from heaven. None of this stuff would have worked. It wouldn't have convinced them because their sole mission was to somehow publicly discredit Jesus. They wanted to publicly embarrass him by saying, okay, I'm going to do this amazing thing and I'm out out of stuff. You know, what happened? That's the only reason that they were doing this. But what we're going to see here is that Jesus isn't going to take the bait. He won't do it. And we know that Jesus doesn't do that kind of thing. He's never one to feel the need to fulfill anyone's demands in order to prove who he is. Typically, and we see this a lot too, when he is challenged, what does he do? He flips it back on the people, right? He often makes them the focus, and that's exactly what he does in these next couple verses. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, and he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. Kind of sounds familiar, huh? And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now, I don't know how many of you heard, you've heard that idiom, red sky at night. There you go. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. And what's, what's a uh, red sky in the morning, sailor's morning? Well, Jesus is actually using this idiom, where, whether it came from him or it was already around, I don't know. But the point is, what he's saying is, at, 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 at when the red sky is red in the, at sunset, what that means is that the next day, what's going to happen, it's probably going to be a really nice day. It's going to be really nice and pleasant. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's morning, what that means is, you know what? That good weather is gone. So probably some really bad weather, some windy and wet rain is coming. So he, they understood all of that, okay? So what Jesus is saying with this idiom to these religious leaders is that you guys are great at interpreting the signs. You're great at seeing the signs of nature in order to predict the weather. But when it comes to something much more important, way more important than the weather, like recognizing the work of the kingdom of heaven being accomplished through Jesus Christ, Jesus right in front of your faces, you're clueless. You're absolutely clueless. You got the weather thing down but you're really totally blind. See, their problem is they don't recognize the truth about Jesus, despite the fact that he's been made perfectly clear to him, to them. He's been made perfectly clear to them. And the truth is, this happens all the time today. 
This happens in our world all the time today. People fail to recognize the truth about who Jesus really is, despite how clear it has been made, despite how clear he has made himself in the word, in his word. You know, for some people, this happens by, they, they do this, they tell themselves that, listen, I will believe in Jesus if only he shows up right now and does a miracle. Ever heard that one before? Ever heard people think that way? Man, if you just show up, oh, fine, I'll believe. But do something about this. Do a miracle. Sounds familiar like those guys. For others, it's by telling themselves or believing that, I, hey, I'll trust Jesus, but only if he meets this criteria, my certain criteria. If he will if give me a sign by acting in a certain way to prove that he's worthy of, our, of my trust. Okay, if he does something, if he works somehow in my life this way, I know we're negotiators when it comes to God, aren't we? God, if you'll just do this, then I'll know you're on board with me. I know that we're going in the, in the right direction together. You ever been tempted to think like this? I know I have. To think, Lord, I will fully trust in you. I will fully lean into you. More, I will, I will be, I'm all yours. If only you will take care of this situation. If this one will just get taken care of, I'm all yours, man. But until then, man, this is rough. I gotta, I, I'll get back to you as I work it out myself. Isn't that so easy for us to work that way? We do that so much. If you'll just fix this situation in this way, or if you'll remove this obstacle, or if you'll heal this ailment, then I'm on board. That's our human nature to do that. And that's how we get mixed up with this whole what's truth and what's lie about who God is. The truth is that Jesus will not, and we know this, Jesus will not jump through hoops. We know this in our head, but we don't let it flesh out a lot. We know that he won't jump through hoops. We know that he won't fit into our preconceived boxes of how he should act because he is God. And he has clearly shown us that he will always, always work for our good and for his glory. Always. That's who he is. He will always do that in a way that brings him honor and glory and really is for our good. So like many of us at times, we do this. The religious leaders, they want a sign. Show me something. Do it. Come on. More More than I've expected. Even though you've given me enough, even though I've my salvation is awesome. Forgiveness is awesome. You've blessed in so many ways. There's still this. Only this. And really, it's just like these guys, religious leaders. Only this won't do it. It won't do it. Oh, I'm, I'm healed? You mean I'm healed? No more cancer? All right. Great. I'm all yours, God. Oh, that was, that was really hard. Maybe not. You know? A marriage is falling apart. Oh, God, you, it's, it's, if, you, if you just put it together, if you just work out it in this way, I'm all good. But the truth is, our marriage gets patched up, and we still have that same mindset because we are looking for God to fit into a box. And once, he, once we think we've got him there, that's we, we manipulate him and we control him constantly there. So Jesus isn't going to do that. Jesus, you know, he's not going to do that for us. So we look for a sign, and this is what they do. This is what uh, they're hoping that Jesus will do. And he does give them a sign, actually. 
He goes on and give him a sign. Jesus wants to give him one, but not in the way that they're hoping. Look at verse 4. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. (laughs) What a weird... Here's your sign. Remember Jonah? I got to go and eat lunch. I'm out of here. What? That's how he leaves the whole thing? You know, now this is similar, if you remember, which I don't, so you probably don't. Back in chapter 12, when we talked about it, he did the same response, remember, to some religious leaders. If you want to look in chapter 12, verse 38, he did the exact same thing to him, but then he explained more about what he was talking about. You see, Jonah, as we know, was a prophet who hundreds of years before Jesus preached a message of repentance to this wicked city called Nineveh. And because of this, remember, the entire city, wouldn't that be amazing? Would would that not be amazing if God showed up, brought a prophet to the coast somewhere in here, and the entire area turned to God? That's amazing. And that's exactly what happened. These people believed in the God of Israel, this pagan, horrible, we can get into how horrible Nineveh was. They were horrible people godless, vile people, but they all turned from their sins in a wicked way to God because of Jonah. And we also know that prior to him going to Nineveh, remember the story how it happens? He gets thrown over the ship, he gets thrown out, and he's in a storm, and he's swallowed by a big fish, and he was there for, any kids in the room, how long many days was he there? Three days. He was there for three days in the belly of a fish, and then he was burped out onto the shore, remember, and he went, and he went and preached in Nineveh. You see, what Jesus is saying here is just like Jonah came and preached repentance to the Ninevites, so too I have come preaching repentance. I'm, the same, I'm doing the same thing. And just as Jonah was in the belly of this big fish for three days and three nights, I will be in the ground. And he was spit up. I'm going to be, not spit up, I'm going to come out all as well. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to be just like this. He's saying, you want a sign, you guys? You want a sign? Look at the life and ministry of Jonah, someone you all know about, someone you all revere, and who, someone who actually foreshadows my life and my ministry. Look at him, and you'll know exactly why I'm here. That's your sign. <laughs> Not what they expected at all, I'm sure. But the reality is, look at his life, look at mine, oh, major similarities. In a sense, what he's saying is, you want a sign? You're looking at him. You're looking at him. This is it. Got to go. <laughs> and he just goes, I love that about him. Commentary William Barclay, he says this, if men cannot see God in Jesus, they cannot see God in anything or anyone when we are confronted with Jesus Christ, we are confronted with, the God, with God's final word and God's ultimate appeal. If that is so, what can be left for the man who throws away the last chance, who refuses to listen to that last word, who rejects that last appeal? This is for some of you. Don't be that person who has heard the good news of the free gift of forgiveness because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Don't be that person that's heard that and choose to ignore the appeal to invite him to be your savior. Don't ignore it. Invite him to be your savior. 
today. Today. If you haven't, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Also, don't be that person who was fooled into fully trusting in Jesus only if he meets your criteria or acts in a certain way in order to prove that he's worthy of your trust. Don't be that person. Don't allow yourself to go down that road. That's a dangerous, dangerous road. Now, in the light of this whole interchange, okay, this whole interchange that he's had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus now, what he does, he uses two recent miracles to teach these disciples in a very, a very important lesson, and us as well. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss it among themselves, saying, we have brought no bread. So we see here that Jesus and the disciples, now they cross the lake, and Matthew brings to our attention that these guys have forgotten to bring bread, okay? They forgot to bring anything to eat, basically, okay? So Jesus takes advantage of this, okay? He takes advantage of this dilemma to give them an important warning, something that I'm sure was probably pretty much prompted from this interchange that he just had with the religious leader. He warns the disciples to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, it's important to understand something about leaven. Leaven was really, back then, a Jewish metaphoric expression for an evil influence, okay? That's what they would say. One that was this evil influence that was liable to spread through a person's life and to completely corrupt it. By by Jesus' day, though, leaven had become a powerful symbol that indicated impurity. If they were going to talk about something that was impure, they would would talk about leaven or yeast. And this is precisely what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing with their warped view that they had concerning how to obey God. Remember the Pharisees added all these things that you had to do? All these things. If you do this on the outside, you're good with God. The Sadducees were basically, okay, if you believe these few things, good. Everything else, go for it. (laughs) Totally fine. Just live your life. Just make sure you do these few things. So this is what they were doing. Their teaching was leaven. Their teaching was evil. It was something that could spread throughout somebody and absolutely destroy them and to ruin their life. And this is what he is talking about. But instead, <laughs> we see the disciples typically, and I, I tried to get bash on them too much because we would probably do the same thing. They don't understand. They, they don't understand that Jesus is using this metaphor to describe the religious teaching and doctrine of these guys. The dis- disciples completely miss the point, okay? They think he's actually talking about bread, you know? They're, they're, he had, remember, notice here, they hadn't said anything. They hadn't said, uh-oh, we forgot. No, it just says that the disciples noticed that they hadn't brought anything. Jesus knows what they're thinking, obviously. He goes, perfect teachable moment. Perfect. And he goes for it. So Jesus brings them back to two recent miracles that they had just witnessed in order to bring things into perspective for him. Look at verses 8 through 11. He says, but Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourself the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not yet remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? 
How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Now remember, they're fresh off of these two incidents of feeding thousands and thousands of people with just a few loaves and fish. It's like Jesus is saying, listen guys, shouldn't the recent events, shouldn't what you just saw with these thousands and thousands of people with just a little bit of food, shouldn't that have cured you of, cured you of worrying about food? Shouldn't, why would you even be worrying about that? I'm talking about something way more important than food. You would think that, because you, you would automatically think, we would think, oh, okay, the disciples, twice, Jesus multiplied bread and fed literally probably tens of thousands of people with just a little bit. You would think they would go, oh, shoot, we forgot to bring bread. Oh, we got Jesus. Not at all. They're freaking out. We got no food. What do we do? So Jesus uses the perfect opportunity to help them to understand what is going on here. Don't worry about it. I'm talking about something way more important than bread. Look what he goes on to say in verses 11, the second half of verse 11 and 12. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Ah, oh, oh, we get it. Now I get it. Now I get it, Jesus, what you're talking about. You're not talking about bread. He's talking about the overly legalistic teachings of the Pharisees and the overly permissive teaching of the Sadducees. It was like leaven. Oh, we get it. We get it. The once there's a little bit goes in there, it spreads and impacts everything. Oh, that makes sense. So now they're getting it. So what Jesus is talking about here is the importance of recognizing false teaching and beliefs concerning God's word. That's what he's doing here. Either by adding to it or taking away from it because they can have a, that can have a dramatic impact on their life. As we saw as with the importance of recognizing the truth about Jesus, we today need to be able to recognize false teachings and false beliefs concerning God's word. Like I said at the beginning, I think a lot of us will say, I don't think I have any of those. We've got to be careful. Jesus wouldn't have said this if it wasn't so important and such something that's so easy to fall into. You know, as with, you know, so here's like an example. For some, it's this inclination to think, oh, I'm not so bad. We've heard this from non-believers before, haven't people that don't trust Christ? It's like, I'm not that bad. Sure, I, I've made my share of really bad mistakes, but I'm sure when it's all said and done, and I've been, I've blown it, but when it's all said and done, you know, God won't hold those against me because you know what? I'm really sincerely trying to be a good person. I'm really sincerely trying to be the best person that I could possibly be. Isn't that enough? I don't need Jesus to do that. I can try really hard. That's leaven. That's exactly what he's talking about. That is leaven. For some, it's the inclination to think that. But, you know, what do we see in God's word? Romans tells us, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Everybody. He says, we've all done that. And for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a message that we have. That's 
the truth that combats that lie. Now, for others, the danger comes in when we, we kind of pick and choose what parts of God's word that we want to take seriously and really apply to our lives. Now, this is where a lot of us get into trouble. We kind of cherry pick God's word and how it fits into our life. Like, here's an example. Take forgiveness. Let's talk about that one. Uh, it's easy. I mean, it's easy to happily say, God, thank you that I'm forgiven. We have a prayer time before we come in here for about 45 minutes and over in the library, and we're praying. We begin by just thanking God, and we all, inevitably someone's always like, thank you, God. We praise you for forgiveness that we have. We love, we love it when God, we can uh, happily apply God's forgiveness to our sin, to our falling short of his glorious standard. We love that. That's easy. Yet how often do we conveniently leave out the difficult truth that we saw back in Matthew chapter 6 that says this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Ouch. And we talked about that. We explained what all, that all looks like. We love to talk about God's forgiveness to us, yet often holding on to the right to not forgive others. Isn't that so easy to happen? That's leaven. That's the yeast. That's what he's talking about. And we gobble it down, and we assume we're okay. We sing our worship songs. We go about our day, and we don't even know that it's happening. We don't even realize that we're gobbling down a lie because we're doing pretty good. That's how these things happen. Another one is becoming preoccupied. This is where some of the legalists come in. Being preoccupied with minor issues that can end up trapping us into this legalistic mindset that leads us far away from the message of love that stands at the heart of the Bible. It's so easy for us to do that. We add man-made rules and man-made regulations to what we and others must do to, be, to obtain God's favor. We do that so easily, don't we? How easy for us to look at someone and go, I can't believe they do that. And, we, and if you really were to look at what they're doing, you're thinking, ah, I don't, it's not like they're disobeying God or anything. They're not living the standard. What you would think is right, that's something you've added on. But we so easily do that. It's easy to do that. Truth is that many of us have grown up with or we've acquired beliefs in God and his word that simply aren't true or simply aren't accurate. Now, I'm not accusing anybody that's been in your past, that's te been teachers of your life of the Bible. Maybe you've had some inerrant teaching. Maybe I have. I know, actually, I know I have. And it's easy for us to just believe that. Or it's easy for us to just kind, of, just kind of just start believing in a way that is not true. This is specifically true. I think the biggest one comes when it comes to the idea of earning or uh, falling out of favor with God. This is a big one. You know, how does, God, how does God see me? The Bible tells us, and this is radical, by the way. The Bible tells us as true follower of Jesus, how God views us is not contingent on our good or bad effort or behavior. Isn't that radical? How God sees you and me as a follower of Jesus, he doesn't, it's not weighed at all on our behavior. 
It's 100% based on how God views his son in whom we are identified. Guys, that's the truth. That is the truth. I can't, we know this in our head. We say it to people, oh, you can't, earn, you can't make God love you anymore. You can't love you any less. And we say that, but then we're weighed down with guilt and shame, thinking God must be disapproving of me right now as a person. God must be mad at me. God must not love me as much as he, as he used to, as when I was doing this or when I wasn't doing that. Leaven. That is the leaven. That's the yeast. And then it spreads. And then we live a life of guilt, and we live a life of shame. All because that little piece of leaven got in there, and we began to believe the lie. And it dictates the way we live our lives, the way we do our relationships, the way we do our marriages, the way we raise our kids. Do you see what Jesus was getting at? It wasn't just, hey, stop doing this. That's not good. Okay, good. You're fine. He saw that it, once, you get, once it gets into our lives, the enemy wants to just throw a little bit in there. And it just spreads until we get down the road and we go, how the heck did I get here? How did this happen? Leaven. We weren't discerning the truth. We are identified in Christ. Colossians 3 says this, since you've been raised to the new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. Here's the best part. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. I was explaining this to a friend just the other day. I was talking to him, and I used this example. I've used it for decades, how, how God sees us as believers. You know, those little clocks, you know, those little clocks that are, they kind of spin around a little bit inside, and they have a glass dome over them. I always picture this as a follower of Jesus. We are that little clock inside, and that glass dome over it, that's Jesus. And when God looks at that clock, he sees Jesus first. He sees, totally sees Jesus first. He doesn't see, oh, the clock's not working. No, he sees that glass first. That's how he sees us. And we need to live in that. We need to walk in that. We need to swim in that. That's so important for us. You see, the disciples totally missed the true lesson of these miraculous feedings of the thousands of people and the interchange with the, with the religious leaders. It wasn't that Jesus was just this great miracle worker, but that the only way to be able to recognize the truth about Jesus and the only way to be able to recognize false teachings or beliefs concerning God's word that we might have is when our focus is on the person and the work of Jesus. It has to stay on the person and the work of Jesus. That's where our focus needs to get, and that's exactly the enemy's number one target is to get our focus off of that, off of the person and the work of Jesus. After all, Jesus said he and the Father are one. And the reality is that the main way to do this, now we say, okay, I get that, Rob. I get what you're saying. I've heard that for so long in my life. Keep my focus on Jesus. Well, how do you do that? What's the best practical way to do that? Now, I'm not one to give points and say, okay, if you go home and do these three things, you know what? Your spiritual life is going to take off. But I'm going to give you a couple today. 
that I really believe that can help us out. Because I believe that the reality is the main way is to not only to focus on him, but the way that we do that is to be continually and regularly in his word. Okay, here comes the pastoral bashing of I'm not in my Bible enough. No. I'm not here to beat the sheep, okay? That's not what we're, that's not what we're doing today. We're talking about the reality of this yeast, this leaven that is so pervasive that gets us. And the number one way to fight it is to be in God's word, to be reading it, to soaking in it, allowing it to invade who we are. And we all know this. So many of us, we know this. Yet the reality is that even though we claim that the Bible is God's word, that it is his inspired, infallible message to us. The reality is that for the most part, you know what? We're not reading it. We're just not. Statistics show, as much as you rely on them, that close to only half of all people who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. More than half that regularly attend read only once a week. Now, I, I know this is a hard, this is difficult. I get that this is a hard thing because the reality though, if that's true, it would make sense then if we're not reading about the person and the work of Jesus, we won't know and understand the person and the work of Jesus. And therefore, we will fail to recognize these things. We will fail to recognize false teaching. We will fail to recognize our false beliefs in God and his word. But Rob, I've been a Christian for, for years. I pretty much know these truths. I've read them. I can read that same verse again. The word we all know, it's living, it's active. How many of you have ever read a passage in the Bible that you've read probably 50 times and it completely speaks anew to you? You know why that happens? Because it's alive, it's powerful, it's God's actual word. So if we're foolish to think that, oh, I've read that passage before, so I don't need to go over that. Well, that was good for you then. That's what he's saying. That's why it's so important to be in God's word. Now, I know this is difficult, and this is a difficult discipline for all of us. I know, believe me, I struggle with it myself. But interestingly enough, (laughs) for what it's worth, this is a side thing here. I came across an article in Christianity Today, and within it, it listed several factors that lead to a higher likelihood that a person will regularly engage in God's word. And here's, here's what they were. Like I said, there is no foolproof way. Here's these six steps and I'll be a, a, a great Christian. But these things right here, they came to find out that these things are things that help us, would encourage us to regularly engage probably more in the Bible. Look at these, confessing our sins and wrongdoings to God and asking for forgiveness. That puts us in a, a frame of mind that we understand who we are and who God is and how important he is in our lives. Being willing to obey God no matter the cost. Wow, if, you're, if I'm not reading God's word and getting fed by the truth, I'm not going to want to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to obey God's word up to a certain cost. Okay? Praying for spiritual status of unbelievers. I'll tell you right now, when you start praying for your unbelieving friends and family members, you're going to want the truth of God's word bathed in, in, in your mind as you pray for them to learn how to pray for them. We've talked about this in our men's Bible study. We've talked about learning how to pray, take our micro prayers to macro prayers. We talked about taking, okay, Lord, I want to pray for my uncle. He's got cancer. Will you please heal him? 
Lord, will you pray? I want to pray for my uncle that you would use this as an opportunity in his life to not only help him to see you, but if, if he already knows you, God, to expand his, his view of you and to help him to trust you more. You see, you see what I'm getting at? When we, when we start playing for unbelievers, especially, we, we learn we don't want to just pray for God to save them. We want to, okay, God, help me to learn how to pray for my unsaved friends how, and family members. How do I do that? Reading books and increasing spiritual growth, always a, a, a great thing. Um, being dis- discipled or mentored by a mature Christian. We have so gotten away in our society from the whole idea of mentors. I think that in my mind, in many ways, I always wish I would have done this as a youth pastor if I would have had the wherewithal and understood how to, instead of having all the things that I did for all those years, worked hard to just get older, mature Christians to come alongside these younger people. That would have, that would have just been amazing. When we have people that come alongside us, even though we're believers, we've been for decades and decades and decades, and we come have someone that comes alongside us that's a mature believer, they see the chinks in our armor. They see the things that we don't see. And it makes us want God's word more. I got to be in God's word because they're helping me to see things that I just can't see. My blind spots are no longer my blind spots when I have someone memorizing scripture one that we all i think struggle with a lot but so powerful and attending a small group focused on bible study that's what one of the biggest joys for me one of the big joys coming to this church is watching our bible studies for our men and our women just absolutely be life transforming it's been wonderful these are good things so as we close and we're going to get ready to take communion here if you have never or if you've gotten away from spending regular time in God's Word, I just want to challenge and encourage you this morning to begin. Begin this week, okay? Even take up some of these factors that we just talked about here. Start doing those things. Ask for someone to come alongside you. But start doing it today. Say, I've been wanting to discipline myself. Start today. Ask for someone around here if there's some tools you could use. There's great tools out there to help you to be in God's Word. And if you are in God's Word regularly, I really would love to challenge you and just really encourage you as well and to ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to continue to give you fresh eyes and a fresh mind and a fresh heart as you receive what He has for you, that you wouldn't just be going through the motions. Yeah, I do my quiet time every day. But God, make this fresh. Make this new. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to believe the lies that the enemy wants me to believe. I don't want to be stuck in falsehood. I don't want to be stuck in lies. Really, you guys, this is the best way for us to be able to discern spiritual truth from spiritual lies is being in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And um, thank you, God, that once again, this is the amount of time we spend in your word and, or the, how often we forget. God, it's good to know that you're not weighing out our, our worth or your care for us by our performance. But God, we do desire to be a people that are in your word, people that are believing the truth, that are living the truth because your word is transforming our lives So, Father, I pray as we go from here today that you would help us. We know the enemy is going to be right there beside, but I pray, God, that you would strengthen all of us to cherish, to love your word, so that in turn, God, we can decipher these lies, this leaven, 
that is thrown at us constantly by the enemy. And we pray it all in your son's name. Amen.